Hello, and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your guest host today, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is unfortunately sick today. Joining me in studio is... Joe Manis. And... Sue Allen. Yeah, and, and Jason and Sue Allen both have probably what, what Chris is at home with. Yes, just for full disclosure, um, both me and the state representative have had this strange, like, cold that affects our voice. So if my voice starts cracking... That's why I know your voice will be pristine, so I'm not too worried about you. At this point, I sound like an adolescent male. (laughs) (laughs) And I had this about two weeks ago, so... Everybody apparently has gotten this. So thank you very much. You're a first-time guest. We've had a lot of repeat guests recently, so I'm always overjoyed to throw a new person into the politically speaking mix. But uh, Representative Sue Allen is not new to politics. No, not at all. Um... First of all, tell me a little bit about your district and your house district and where it encompasses, essentially. Yes. um, My house district number is 100. So basically, I represent um, the southern, pretty much the southern part of Chesterfield, the western, possibly um, northwestern part of Baldwin, Mm -hmm. uh, one precinct of town and country. And Winchester. But you live in town and country. I correct? do live in Winchester, or I do live in town and country, and that's the one represent, or that's the one precinct that I have. From I'm, town and I, I just want to say, for full disclosure, and people who have listened to this show know that my grandfather lives in Chesterfield. He lives in Bill Otto's district, and I am always thrilled to have anybody who represents Chesterfield on the show. I am biased towards Chesterfield. Chesterfield is a great community. Yes. So. You were elected in 2008, and you succeeded Representative uh, Charles Portwood. But before we get to that point, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you decided to get into state politics in the first place. Okay. Um, I'm a physical therapist, and for many years, I would visit uh, my legislators, uh, my senators and uh, representatives uh, in Jeff City, to lobby for uh, issues related to physical therapy, related to children, uh, related to healthcare in general. Uh, In 05, when Governor Blunt left out the Missouri First Steps of the Early Intervention Program from the budget, um, I guess I got the call and I was headed to Jeff City in an hour on a Monday morning and uh, I worked with uh, then Senator Mike Gibbons mm-hmm. who was my senator at the time and uh, we got uh, Senate Bill 500 which then put the early intervention in Missouri in statute mm-hmm. and frankly that's the best thing that ever happened to that program because um, every year prior to that point Desi Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed had been um, needing to go back to um, the body um, in the third quarter for supplemental funding. Mm-hmm. So that's changed, and uh, I was happy to do that. Yeah, putting, so, it, putting it in statute gives it some permanence, <clears throat> essentially. Yes, yes. It, it wasn't. Uh, it couldn't be taken away at the whim of somebody just to pull it out of mm-hmm. line item out of the budget. So, yeah, but you, you decided to run for office in 2008. Did, did, did you get encouragement from any particular people? I was encouraged by then-Senator Gibbons. Um, I, I, my my uh, 
representative when I was in, before we moved to town and country, was Richard Byrd. Mm-hmm. And I was very close to him, and then, you know, he died. Right. Um, and then when we moved to town and country, I kind con- first thing I did, I contacted Representative Portwood before I even moved, because I knew I was going to be working with, uh-huh. needing to have a relationship with him. So um, he did not discourage me. He didn't necessarily encourage me. Well, he did encourage me, but he didn't openly support me. Uh-huh. And that was after he had had some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, he, you know, he, it, he did not help or hinder me. Probably now, I, had to look up, I had to look up the Secretary of State's results because that was not a race I was following. You did have a primary, but you won with about 69% of the vote. So that seemed to be... Uh, a pretty resounding victory for you. And that's a, it's a heavily Republican district. So really that first primary victory was pretty crucial. Yeah, I had a primary and actually it was against one of the Manchester aldermen. And and the district then was the 92nd and that Mm -hmm. was um, uh, town and country and uh, Manchester. And then the unincorporated areas around Queenie Park. So, so, so I won that. I was. Would you say that was your toughest election, the primary? And since then, it's really been not very difficult. Is that a fair assessment? Well, that was my only primary, and um, you know, I just got out and did the work. I don't, I don't have anything to judge it by. I was, I was out there all the time. Yeah, because we had Scott Sifton on recently, and his experience running in elections where it's very, very fifty-fifty. Is a lot different from when you run in a heavily Republican or heavily Democratic district. So it's where it's mainly establishing yourself within the GOP ranks when you're in a the same thing is true with the Democratic Absolutely. district. It's usually the nasty primaries. So quickly, you've established you established yourself um, in particularly key areas. Um, you want to talk about the major areas that you're interested in and what you're involved in in the um, state house. Well. Um, as a physical therapist, initially I, I assumed I would be related uh, working in the areas of health care. And um, my first term I was in health care policy. Um, during my first and second years, I realized it doesn't matter how good a policy is. Um, it depends on what the cost and how we implement and can afford a policy, any policy. So my second term then, I uh, was placed on the House Budget Committee and I was on the Appropriations for Health, Mental Health, and Social Services. Mm-hmm. And, and from what I understand, um, the House Budget Committee obviously consists of the overall Budget Committee and then all these uh, appropriations. I don't want to call them subcommittees because they are standalone committees. But they basically are responsible for going through the budgets of certain departments, which then kind of create the overall budget. Is that correct, or am I misstating that? No, that's correct. Okay. And um, though within the appropes we are the appropriations of health, mental health, social services, and I'll just call it the appropes. But, yes, um, it's a mouthful, so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Okay, thank you. And so um, we typically started off um, responding to the recommendations, the requests um, 
from the departments the governor's recommendations and looked at those um, as closely as we could. Um, very quickly, we recognize that we are given only the information that individuals are really wanting us to see. Mm. So very quickly then, um, and the current, or well, the current vice chair of budget, Representative Flanagan, who was uh, at this term the chair of the appropriate committee, we started looking very closely. We got uh, charts looking at the previous five years of spending and uh, programming and withholds and uh, growth. And just we kind of went down into the weeds mm -hmm. to get a better feel. Now, my background, I've actually, I'm very familiar with a lot of these programs. And so um, this committee um, evolved and, and we didn't just look at then what the requests and recommendations are. We, and, and typically what you do, you, you look at, um, you create what the appropriations committee is going to recommend to mm -hmm. go to the full budget committee. Mm -hmm. And we did that. But at the same time, we continued to work and dig down into uh, the weeds and um, take a very active role in oversight of these three departments. Now, now is, is Medicaid one of the things that your committee deals with, or is that a different committee? No. Medicaid is a part of social services. Social mm -hmm. services is made up of... Medicaid, which takes money from four different departments. Correct. And then also in social services, you have um, family support, which includes the welfare mm -hmm. programs yes. of TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and food stamps. And it has the children's division and Division of Youth Services. So the, uh, and there are a couple other small ones or smaller compared to these. But um, so what, um, yes, Medicaid was, is a key part. Of, the, of your committee. Yes. So, you know, since 2009, <laughs> I think that the governor, Governor Jay Nixon, at various times has proposed different ways to expand Medicaid. I remember in 2009, there was a proposal out there that would have used like hospital money. Yeah, no, no state money. It would have, yeah, the to hospitals were expanded by a certain percentage point. And now that 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 didn't end up passing, obviously. And then we're at a point now where he's been kind of barnstorming to different kind of intervals about expanding it under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act to 133 percent the federal poverty level. Which would add or expand benefits to about close to 300,000 uh, Missourians. Right. At, which was roughly the same number that either lost or got their benefits curved back when there was the round of cuts in 2005, which is uh, before the current representative's time. Yeah. But yeah, so um, he's been pressing that because this year, 2014, as we're ending, was the first of a three-year <clears throat> portion where the federal government was paying all the costs of the expansion. Now, then, yeah. now, now, what I'm kind of getting at is you were just talking about, you know, even though a situation or a policy may seem like a good policy, the devil is really in the costs. And many Republicans have said, 
you know, even though you're paying 100% by you, I mean, the federal government is paying 100% of this, this expansion for the first three years, the state has to pick up the tab eventually. And that's been one of the biggest contentions well, against un- it. Under the expansion, the federal government picks up at least 90% of the costs forever. Well, but what the Republican contention is that the federal government doesn't have the money to, to be doing that. So, okay, that was a big explanation. <laughs> it's all stuff that you already right. know, obviously. But this is for our listeners. What, what's kind of your view of this entire push for Medicaid expansion? And do you think that it will ever find favor in the legislature that's heavily Republican? Okay. Well, first of all, currently, the federal government gives us a 60 40, 60 percent Fed. Correct. 40% state dollars, and that's for the existing population, age-blind and disabled, and poor, uh, very poor uh, under adults, mm-hmm. um, uh, women who have children, and then um, and people, un- adults under the 19% Correct. Po- uh, Correct. federal poverty level. Yeah, because Missouri has one of the most restrictive requirements for adults anywhere in the country. Yes, but we also have one of the most generous Correct. programs for children. Yes. Our Correct. CHIPS program takes children up to the 300% of the federal poverty level. So that's always been something that was uh, very a key um issue for me, I don't want, you know, I don't want to see um, coverage for children to go away. Now, the um, expansion population, just to clarify, those are non-disabled adults without children. So um, uh, the, after the federal money goes away in in mass, then the state would pick up that 10%. Correct. Now, if you look at the overall budget of Medicaid, it's a lot of money. The, um, and I have some numbers here, but it's, I think it's close to eight, $8 billion. I, I $800 think that, million. Dollars. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a lot of money, basically. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And I'm gonna, I want to clarify, I'm a physical therapist. I'm not a numbers person. And, and I always think, okay, these are big numbers. We have wonderful analysts, but I look at the process and the um, the ways that which we operate. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, it's a lot of money. Yeah, because most of the estimates have said <clears throat> the state portion would eventually be somewhere between 100 million and 200 million when they have to pick up that 10%. Right. And just an example, and I don't know the, the total comparison of demographics of Missouri with Ohio, but Ohio has expanded Medicaid. And I was recently uh, in Washington, and I was told by someone who should know that um, Ohio is having increased expansion costs quarterly at $250 million. Of course, Ohio is a much bigger state. Okay, so it's got a better population. Mm-hmm. But you, we have to know that we are going to have growth even within, and we have growth without expansion. That's true, because right every, I, 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 every time I see a budget from year to year, the Medicaid cost is usually higher, and it may have stuff to do with just the growth of the population or maybe just the amount of federal money is fluctuating. I'm not entirely sure, but... Right. You, you, that is probably 
a consequence of that, not Turgis. probably. It's Do only. you foresee any situation where the state, I mean, let's say that more states expand as Ohio has done, because Ohio has a Republican governor. Indiana is expanding. They have a Republican governor. Um, Arkansas has expanded. They have a Republican governor. So you have a number of states with Republican governors who are participating Just in the Just one Medicaid quick expansion. correction, though. Arkansas has a Democratic governor now. No, right. But I meant, yeah. Yeah. Correct. And Indiana correct. has applied for a waiver. Correct. But they have not received that. So they may or may not be expanding. Okay. Yeah, that's so, true. Indiana. That's true. But, but continue your question, Joe. Okay. So <laughs> my point is, do you foresee any circumstance where the state of Missouri would um, participate in Medicaid expansion, or do you think that's sort of... It's not going to happen, so they need to be focusing on other things. I believe it's not going to happen. Uh, in this last um, budget uh, for 2015, we implement, we presented numerous ways to reform Medicaid mm -hmm. where there would be a significant return on investment dollar-wise, but also for the benefit of the population, so human-wise, mm -hmm. and for health, for prevention, and uh, for helping people, you know, in that current Medicaid population do better. Mm -hmm. We expand. We take the, um, when we come back and need to spend more and more and more every year on more Medicaid, those dollars have to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we have not um, had a, a booming economy, and I'll say that with tongue-in-cheek because we haven't had growth. But um, so the money, it would have to come from education, and everybody knows how that would work. Um, there are other areas it would come to. Now, we also, um, the voters in 2010, voted against Obamacare. Y'all remember that yeah, the freedom the, of yeah, healthcare. Yeah, in the in the in the primary. <clears throat> Although some say that okay, the August primary in twenty ten was probably Republican leaning for various reasons, including the fact that it was on the ballot, and because the Democrats didn't campaign against it. But that said, I think most people agree that even though the numbers might have changed slightly, it probably would have passed, even if there had been a campaign against it. Yes, and then following um, within the next two years, we also. Um, had a vote against having a, uh, a an exchange, an exchange. A state exchange with that unless the legislature approved it. Exactly. Yes. But what we have, and I keep uncovering and finding out more, we actually have many ways, many provisions uh, that the departments operate under the current administration uh, implementing many provisions from Obamacare. So, in a sense, we do have um, ACA or Obamacare um, functioning in Missouri. Anything in particular that, that, that you want to mention that's implemented, even though? Well, a lot of these 90-10 matches, um, and I have, well, the health homes come from the ACA. Uh, there are Medicaid primary care rate changes. That came from ACA. Medicaid expansion is a key uh, portion. Medicaid expansion is Obamacare, is ACA. Um, I mean, I've got 
five or six pages sure, sure. and well, you okay. can see the MAGI, uh, Modified Adjusted Growth Income. That's from Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And so as the departments are refiguring the way of which someone becomes eligible for TANF or current Medicaid that we have or food stamps or any of these welfare programs, that is being uh, implemented according to the MAGI, which is from the ACA. Yes. So when we say we don't have Obamacare, mm -hmm. that's not quite clear. It's not quite accurate. So let's kind of segue into another thing that you were involved in, I, I think either in 2012 or 2013. Um, Representative Allen was the chairwoman of, I think, an interim committee or a Correct. special committee that looked at the structure of St. Louis County. That's obviously become a very big issue. It was a big issue before Ferguson, but now it's become an even more pertinent issue because people around the country have looked at how St. Louis County is divided, and it's people are thinking... 90 municipalities. 90 municipalities, my oh my, stuff like that. So before we get into some specific things within that uh, committee, which, which uh, includes the sales tax pool, which is a political science uh, professor's <laughs> dream, kind of tell me what you, you found out in that committee and what you think maybe the county should should take from that experience because it's it's a big issue right now. So. Actually, I I chaired two interim committees. The first one was just a house committee, mm -hmm. and that was um, <clears throat> on local governance. Yes, and um, so we came up with a report that um, had in, uh, hearings had. Uh, individuals had come up with the St. Louis Metropolitan Statistical Area right. as an entity. And then we had the issues with TIF of the uh, pool tax yes. uh, revenue sharing. And um, so the outcome of that first interim committee was to have a joint committee, joint interim committee, looking at local governance. Mm -hmm. So then the next interim, we got to talk about that. And what that interim committee was to do was to come up with um, an unbiased entity that would perform study to delve into um, the St. Louis metropolitan area, the statistical area, the um, TIF, the Boundary Commission, and the sales tax. Cool. But I don't think you talk, I, I think when I don't think you talked about city county merger there at all, if I'm not mistaken. That would be under the probably the uh, category of the St. Louis St. Louis Metropolitan Statistical Area. And we did not talk about yeah. a, a city county merger, though a lot of uh, people who testified wanted to discuss it. And I allowed some of that to yeah. happen. But then. Um, at the same time, this Better Together was coming about. Yeah, which is this group. This is the effort to try to get the city to become the city of St. Louis to become part of St. Louis County in some form. Now, just generally, kind of from this experience, did you kind of come away from looking at the St. Louis statistical metropolitan area and think, "Gee, what a mess! We need to really streamline stuff," or is it more nuanced and complicated than that? It's very complicated. Uh, you have many, many fire districts. You have the municipal, 
municipalities, the 92. Right. You have, um, well, and what we've seen now with Ferguson, all the, the issues of municipal courts, how does a very small community cover their costs? Um, you know, you go north from, I don't know, maybe Page up to 70, and you go by f- within five minutes, probably six or seven different community uh, municipal signs on, on 170. Mm-hmm. So um, that is um, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, what um, the issue, and when people talk about the statistical area or uh, incorporation, and some people even talk about Unigov, and so when um, the discussion comes, I mean, there are people who say, well, are we talking about a Unigov, a merger, or the city coming incorporated like any other? Yeah. Just for education purposes, because <clears throat> I'm from Indiana and grew up there, Unigov is kind of the name given to what happened in Indianapolis in the 1970s when Richard Luger, who later became uh, U.S. Senator was mayor of Indianapolis. He spearheaded this effort that, in effect, merged the city of Indianapolis with Marion County. Yeah. So the city of Indianapolis and Marion County are one and the same, except for less than a handful of municipalities that refuse to disincorporate and become part of the yeah. city of Indianapolis. And, but but that said, yeah. that that's different than... Uh, the city of St. Louis re-entering St. Louis yes. County and just becoming a municipality. Because my understanding is, and this is kind of me going off from from covering this, a Unigov situation in St. Louis County where there's one city is going to be difficult, if not impossible. Correct. Correct. I, I agree. I, but but there are still people having that discussion. Now, if the city was to become incorporated into the county, one of the key issues that has to be looked at is. Where did their sales tax? That was going to be right. my next question because yes. this is a big issue right now. Yeah. Chesterfield, which is in your district, has now sued um, to basically nullify essentially the sales tax pool. They say it's a special law. I think that was an argumentation that was brought up earlier. But there, this is an issue where I guess certain cities are point of sale cities, and they get to keep the sales tax that's generated within their boundaries. And then there's the pool cities where there's a group of cities in St. Louis County who've agreed to pool their uh, sales tax revenue and then they get a certain amount of money based on population. And the point of sales cities, there is a small portion of their sales tax that actually goes into the pool, a real tiny thing. So, yeah, it's complicated. Now, the, 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 the controversy with Chesterfield is back when they incorporated in the late 1980s, they became a pool city. Correct. And this was before it became essentially one of the biggest retail municipalities in the county, if not the entire region. So they basically have outlet malls, they have a mall, they have a thriving commercial sector, and they want to keep more of that money, but they can't because they can't change over into a point of sale city. Hence, one of the reasons why they are trying to sue. Well, but they also, with the development that has occurred, the malls along uh, Highway 40, they have, um, their revenue has grown to the point where they are giving up, I think, approximately or at least 
uh, close to 60% of the revenues. And they're losing money when they need to provide the municipal, ser extra pr municipal services. Because more people are moving to For their mall, Chesterfield. yes. But to provide the police and fire right. and the maintenance it's, of it, these malls, I mean, it they're is, losing it, money. It is also the second biggest municipality now. So what I have found, though, with efforts to change the pool is that it's, it's just, frankly, a moving target. Because for every Chesterfield that wants it changed, there are other municipalities or representatives that represent unincorporated St. Louis County that don't necessarily want it changed because it benefits them somehow. And I've kind of gotten the sense that there really is it's hard to get a legislative consensus around this issue because no matter what party you're in, it's just that the, the cities that various representatives represent have totally different views on this. Has that been kind of your impression as well? Is that one of the reasons why there hasn't been any changes to it? Sure. And if you look at Baldwin, Chesterfield, Town and Country, and Winchester, um, Chesterfield gives up a lot of money. Baldwin is a hybrid. So they have, uh, they had incorporated some, um, so they you know, they have both. Yes. And then, uh, and Winchester receives the money. And so... For me, uh, you know, I mean, I'm trying to get some intellectual balance and reason. Mm -hmm. um, what I've, and, and with some of the interim committees um, that we had, the hearings, uh, you know, we have um, people coming from um, a municipality that receives pretty much most of, if, you know, most of, I'll say a significant part of their their um, funds for running their municipal government, and they say, "Well, we we do a really good job with the money," and and I would say, "Yeah, well, you should do a really good job because somebody else gave you this money." Yeah. Now, um, Wildwood is an example. They receive a lot of their funding. You look at Wildwood. Wildwood is a beautiful place. They have a very small uh, retail area. It's like a little village. With now, little... They're, they're a pool city as well, is that correct? Yes, because yeah. they recently incorporated. There was a certain point in time <laughs> where all the cities that incorporated became pool cities. And right. Wildwood, I think, became a city in 1994, I think. So, But basically what I'm understanding is legislatively – there, it's just going to hard. It's going to be hard to get traction on this issue. It's well, if it goes to the uh, legislature, and there was a bill last year uh, in the House, and uh, I believe uh, Representative Deal was uh, working, offering to help get some uh, consensus with mm -hmm. this, and uh, the many of the uh, committee members were um, less than impressed with the um, situation that we have in St. Louis County. They couldn't believe it. Yeah. And if this, and I say if, probably when this goes to the state, a lot of the people, and I've said all along, people in St. Louis County need to work. We need to work this out ourselves. But it goes on the state level. It the goes other to state level. Yeah, we just assume not They're going to fix it. it, and it's not going to be to um, the re people receiving the money. Yeah. It's not going to be to their liking. So let's kind of transition a little bit into your future. Yeah. You are. This is your last term you're in entering, the legislature. Yeah, you're entering your... 
Seventh year. And I just got to ask before we get to there, you were in the Senate district where Jill Shoup was running, correct? Yes. You decided not to run for that race. Is there any reason you decided not to run for the Senate this time just because you wanted to finish up in the House? I needed to finish up. I've got, um, you know, with term limits, um, it, you, and I haven't just shown up in Jeff City to push the green button and the Mm -hmm. red button. I've worked. And so... I'm at a place where I have a very uh, significant uh, understanding of uh, of these certainly these biggest departments that we have the uh, largest and when you know uh, budget chair stream was this last two years if something if there were questions he would send people my way and I didn't want to give that up I don't. Yeah. Um, so I was not willing to do it at that point. Yeah, I put on a list of people who could run for that seat, including you. It included Colleen Wassinger. It included uh, Dave Spence and John Bruner. Yeah, it included, re- it included right? Cole McNary, and none of them ended up running for that seat. It ended up being Jay Ashcroft and a couple of other people. And obviously, uh, Representative Shoup won. Democrat. Now, you will, you after, she'll be in office, I guess, her term goes until 2018. Would that be something you would consider in a few years of running for, or is this basically your last couple of terms and then I mean, it's pretty, years, it's pretty yeah. much it's pretty much over at this point? I don't know. Two years is a long time. Um, I would have two years out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certainly not ready to come home and and uh, do needlepoint or anything <laughs> like that. But uh, I. I'm not ready to commit. So. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're asking about a race four years in the future. Right. That's yeah. fair. But you were talking about, about ter- term limits. Term limits what before. are your thoughts about term limits now that you're going to be affected by it after this term? Well, I voted for term limits. Okay. And, again, I, I never planned to be a representative. I have a wonderful profession. I was happy. Uh, but the, it just happened. Um, so I voted for term limits, and I was not aware of really what happens with term limits when when um you know you have people come in you know in and out in and out um a maximum of eight years in the house and or the senate in a sense what we end up with is the bureaucrats um and the lobbyists are the people individuals who have historical knowledge and one of the things I've, I've done um, when we started doing this our freshman term was create the freshman focus, which was to bring, for our existing class, was to bring in uh, different analysts, you know, our, our chief clerk of the house, our budget uh, director, people who have been there, and um, different people who had been in various, you know, departments under other governors. Um, and uh, become um, educate, you know, become better informed. And then through my second and third terms, I also worked with the uh, the Republican Caucus to do that, to mentor and to help people do a better job of hitting the road running, at least with some movement. Would you like to see a change in term limits, or? Oh, I definitely would, and I it wouldn't affect me, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. I think, and we have, we have. Uh, you know, eight years in the House, uh, four two-year terms, and we have eight in the Senate, 
two four-year terms. I think if we had any combination of 16 years, I don't think somebody needs to be there for 30 years. Uh, and, you know, and though you do have people say, well, what is the factor? We have elections that can uh, affect somebody coming and going, but there's still a point, I think, a term, a, a limit is okay. I would like to see the any combination of uh, 16 years mm -hmm. because what happens is when you have in a Senate district with with two or three really good people, you know, what the, what do they do? They fight each other in a primary. You mean the legislators? The, yes. The House members. You have two I'm or sorry. three House yes. members. The House then members the Senate are, are going to battle for one Senate seat, and, and you lose the impact of people who have been there for eight years, and but they only get one senator. Yeah, that's definitely <clears throat> happened in a lot of other districts. You're in a district that is a little bit different in the sense it's a competitive seat where in the general, but that definitely happens where there's the primary is essentially the general yeah. for both sides. So we're running a little bit low on time, so we're going to stop it there. Thank you so much again for joining us. To close this out, you can follow us. Uh, our, you could find our work at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at? Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. My email is sue.allen at house.mo.gov. And I do believe that on my uh, website, I have a Facebook and a Twitter. Okay. Well, very well, good. So Everybody is technological these days. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Thank you.